0: The Bible we look at that I usually have up here with me every week says uh, Bible on it. And I open it up and it's got uh, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament that we consider to be scripture. And on the outside of it, it says Bible. I've got another book here on the outside of it that says Bible as well. But when I open it up, it's got my 66 books plus about 15 others that it's uh, calling scripture as well. Both of them say Bible on the outside of it. Maybe driving down the road, you have seen a billboard or watching TV, you have seen an advertisement for this book called the Book of Mormon, which... uh, testifies that it is another testament of Jesus Christ. Another testament of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Maybe you've seen this book called The Lost Books of the Bible. This is interesting. Uh, Let me read the inside the flyleaf here to you. It says, The Lost Books of the Bible, being all the Gospels, Epistles, and other pieces now extant, meaning existing, attributed in the first four centuries to Jesus Christ, his apostles and their companions, not included by its compilers in the authorized New Testament. And then later on at the bottom it says, uh, the documents in this book are written soon after Christ's crucifixion during the early spread of Christianity. But when the Bible was compiled at the end of the 4th century, these texts were not among those chosen. They were suppressed by the church and for over 1,500 years were shrouded in secrecy. So... Come to find out, there's some, there's some books of the Bible that uh, that are lost, that are now found, and you can get them here in this book called Lost Books of the Bible. Uh, more books for you to to read. So you're telling me that there are more books of the Bible than the 66 that we have. We've got a book here that claims to be another testament of Jesus Christ, a book that has several of the lost books of the Bible another book that actually says Bible on it that has about 15 more Bible books in it than does the book that I have that says Bible on it. You'll remember about a month ago, just before Easter, we did a a whole Sunday devoted to the Bible, talking about uh, is there any error in it, talking about the inerrancy of the Scripture. And what we're going to be talking about today, you could kind of look at it as a, a sister to that. We discussed about a month ago that the Bible has no error in it in the original manuscripts. We considered it to be inerrant or without error. We said that all scripture is inspired by God. But today we're going to ask the question, what is scripture? We say, yeah, all scripture is God breathed and profitable, but what is scripture? I've got sixty-six, it's got sixty-six plus, here's another one, here's a few more. All scripture is inspired, but what is scripture? If I were to ask you, the, the book that you're holding in your hand, probably has 66 books bound together in the Bible, how do you know that's it? How do you know you haven't been slighted some more, and that some of this other stuff you ought to be reading as well? That's why our topic today is very important. There are disputes about what actually is Scripture. There's a guy named Roger Beckwith that says, If there is no canon, then there is no Bible. You know what the word canon means? It's from a Hebrew word that means read. It was, it was a measuring reed that was used, like a like ruler. It was a standard. And it came to be known by the Greeks, uh, when we talk about the Bible as canon, as those books of the Bible that are considered the standard, those books of the Bible that are considered scriptural, in other words, the books of Scripture are considered canon or canonical. So when I talk about canon today, or the books that are canonical, I'm talking about the books—the 66 books that have been recognized as Scripture in in our Bibles. Well, I want to start this morning at the beginning, which would be the Old Testament. It's kind of funny that. Uh, you know, we especially as evangelical conservative Christians base everything we say, everything that we believe is based on the Bible. You know, we don't hold with tradition quite as much as, as some others in Christendom might. And yet, our Bible that we hold to was recognized by tradition. It is tradition that has let us know what these, the books that we hold as our standard are. The Bible is recognized by traditions. And so as recognitions differ, there's going to be disputes. The Old Testament was pretty well settled as to what was what. There was really only about five books that anybody ever really had a problem with. And you narrow that down, there really was only about one. The book of Ecclesiastes, and you can, if you've read through Ecclesiastes, you can kind of guess as to why they had a problem with it, because it is so secularly oriented. Solomon's mindset there is so earth, earthly oriented. Uh, it's looking about the things under the sun. But ultimately, uh, as we know, even Ecclesiastes was accepted as scripture, as as uh, part of the text, and. Uh, We want to talk about these disputed books primarily because the date at when, when they were recognized as Scripture is very critical. For example, look at a chart here. In the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the last Old Testament book written was 2 Chronicles, written about 400 BC, and then the New Testament began to be written obviously after the time of Jesus. So we've got about 400 what are called silent years. And during this time, a group of literature called the Apocrypha, uh, the Old Testament Apocrypha, came up. Apocrypha means the the hidden things. The hidden things. And some folks consider the Old Testament Apocrypha to be scripture. In fact, this book that I showed you that uh, has our 66 books plus in it, the plus is the Apocrypha. Which some Christians actually believe that uh, these extra books are scripture. Well, why do they think that it's scripture? Primarily because it's something that happened uh, around A.D. ninety. Now, A.D. means our, you know, our section, not B.C. but A.D. Afterwards, called uh, the Jamnia decision. It should be Jamnia, not Jamina. Jamnia, the Jamnia decision it affirmed the, the Old Testament canon. Now, what the folks who believe that the, the Apocrypha is Scripture, what they'll do is they'll say, well, the people at Jomnia in A.D. 90 were still kind of debating whether or not these Old Testament books were actually Scripture. And so what that does is it opens up for them to say the canon was not yet closed. In other words, it was still open for editions, which would include, guess what came before that? The Apocrypha. And so, in 1545, the Council of Trent, and, and notice, by the way, this is 1,455 years after Jomnia, which, by the way, Jomnia didn't add the Apocrypha. They just recognized the Old Testament was what it was. But yet they talked about these disputed books. Council of Trent said, well, since they talked about the disputed books and the canon wasn't closed yet, and the Apocrypha can be included, and that's just what the... the, uh, the uh, uh, the Council of Trent did. They included the Apocrypha as part of, part of Scripture. But the question we need to answer is, was the canon open at that time? Or had it been closed? Was the Old Testament still open for suggestions the time the Apocrypha was written? Or was it not? Maybe your Bible reading program is not long enough. Maybe you need to be reading more, in other words. Well, there was a guy named Judas Judas Maccabeus. Judas was not a bad name prior to uh, the betrayer. It was popular. Judah, the tribe of Judah. Judas Maccabeus, anyway, he had some buddies. Or I really shouldn't call him that. That's pretty loose. Uh, he was a very important Jew during this time at 164 B.C. I remember B.C. This is about 250 years before the Jomnia decision was made. Judas Maccabeus compiled a list of all the Old Testament books. In fact, Israel at this time understood that the canon was closed. In fact, they had even numbered the books. The Old Testament canon uh, during this time, 164 B.C., was said to be closed. In fact, it's ironic that even the Apocrypha, a book in the Apocrypha, makes mention of this this fact. In 2 Maccabees, how often do you see this on our screen? 2 Maccabees 2... And in like manner, Judas, meaning Maccabeus, also gathered together for us all those writings that had been scattered by reason of the war that befell, and they are still with us. If, the, if therefore ye have need thereof, send some to fetch them unto you. In other words, uh, Judas Maccabeus, at 164 B.C., gathered all the books, and none of this was the Apocrypha. It numbered 22 or 24 books, And uh, I say, or, because it depends on how they're grouped. Some would put Ruth and Judges together as one book. Some have them as two. Lamentations and Ezekiel as one book. Some have them as two. But they preferred the number 22 for the amount of the Old Testament books because that's how many letters they had in their alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. So they thought, well, it must be 22 books. And so they kind of arranged it to where there was 22 books. But it's the same material that we have in our 39 books. You say, well, how is that? well, they'd take the 12 minor prophets and lump them all together in one book and call it the 12. they just arrange the same material differently. But the point is, it's the same Old Testament that Judas Maccabeus recognized 250 years before the, the Jomnia decision, and it did not include the Apocrypha. The main reason the Apocrypha can't be included outside the testimony of Jesus, that we'll look at in a few minutes, is because it was written after this time, after Judas got all the books together. Now, the problem is that the Apocrypha is excellent history. You will read some of the books in, uh, in the Apocrypha if you, if you were to read them, like uh, some of the Maccabees and Judith, uh, Ecclesiasticus is one called. as excellent, excellent history, excellent material for us that lets us know what happened in those 400 years to the Jewish nation. And it's true, it's true history. But that doesn't mean it's scripture. Just because it's true doesn't mean that it's scripture. I've got one of my favorite books by Chuck Swindoll is The Grace Awakening. Now I think that what old Chuck says in this book is true. But that doesn't mean that I can rip the cover off of it and duct tape it to the back of my Bible and call it Revelation chapter 23. Just because it's true doesn't make it scripture. Now, Dahl comes just about as close as anything I've seen. But I wouldn't call it Scripture, even though it's true. Uh, Jude, in the book of Jude, he quotes from the Apocrypha. You say, well, yikes. But he doesn't call it Scripture. Paul quotes a pagan poet in the book of Acts. That's not Scripture. It's simply true. Just because you're using a historical source for information doesn't mean you're calling it the Bible. The Apocrypha was never considered uh, to be was never quoted as Scripture. Now, there were some early church fathers that thought that the Apocrypha was Scripture for various reasons. If you really want to know, come to me and we'll talk. But let's just suffice it to say that some of them thought that that, that it was Scripture. But it was never a consensus. It was never the universal church. It was always an individual here because of peer pressure. It was always an individual here because of this reason or another. But when push came to shove, they would never quote the Apocrypha as Scripture when it came to doctrine. They would always quote the canonical books, even though they said that they thought that some of the Apocrypha was Scripture. Now, we are at an extreme advantage in in looking at the Old Testament and deciding whether or not the Apocrypha is actually Scripture because Jesus himself makes a statement about it. Did you know that? Jesus himself makes a statement about it. The Old Testament can was not only recognized by Judas Maccabeus way back in 164, but Jesus himself. In Luke 11, look at the screen. This is is a key verse. Luke 11, verse 50 and 51. Jesus says, the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the house of God. What book was Abel killed in? Genesis. Genesis, right. Here's a tricky one. What book was Zechariah, this priest killed? Zechariah, yeah. What, what, what book was he killed in? Second Chronicles. Remember what I said the last book written was in the Old Testament? It was Second Chronicles. Now, we have it arranged differently because of topic. We have Malachi last. Malachi was not written last. Second Chronicles was the last book written. Now, John the Baptist was a prophet. Why didn't Jesus include him here? He said all the prophets since the foundation of the world charged against just this generation. Why didn't he include John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist was not in the Old Testament Scripture. This is what he's talking about. The blood of Abel in Genesis, the blood of Zechariah in Second Chronicles. In other words, he, he is laying the blame on them, and that's his point. But the application that we can get here as far as the Old Testament is... He clearly told us the beginning and the end of the Old Testament revelation. It began with Genesis. It ended with Second Chronicles. In other words, all the 39 books that we hold as the Old Testament and that the Jews held as the Old Testament and still do, in fact, that's it. And you'll notice, uh, let's have the, yeah, this is it. No, yes, this is it. Notice that uh, the Judas Maccabeus didn't have the Apocrypha to contend with. You say, well, it came up afterwards. Jesus had the Apocrypha to contend with. And he did not include it when he made this, this uh, bookend statement of the beginning and the end. He says it's only the 39 books that, that we hold to. So, uh, it's very helpful that Jesus made that statement. If he does not include the Apocrypha, then we should not either. But we get to the New Testament now, and it gets a little more difficult because we don't have a statement by Jesus that says, here's the beginning and here's the end of the New Testament. So it's just a a little more difficult, but it's not impossible to look at. The first generation of Christians didn't have a bound, uh, nice little gold-embossed thing like we do here that has the whole New Testament for them. It was still being written. It was still being inspired by the Holy Spirit during the first century. In fact, it wasn't finished till about A.D. 95 or 96 when Apostle John wrote Revelation. It was written during the, the whole of the, the first century. But it was uh, recognized very early when someone would write a book, when an apostle would, would write a book, it was recognized to be Scripture. For example, the New Testament was recognized early Paul Quotes in 1 Timothy 5, he says, For the Scripture says, Notice he calls it Scripture, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, who is he quoting here? You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. He's quoting there from Deuteronomy. Who's he quoting when he says the laborer is worthy of his wages? You're not going to find that in the Old Testament, anywhere. He's quoting Luke. Jesus made that statement in Luke. And he is equating Scripture, both the Old Testament uh, and, and not only that, the Pentateuch, the first five books, nobody disputed that that was Scripture. He's equating that with Luke of his own generation, one of his traveling companions, calling them both Scripture. Peter does a similar thing. You're probably familiar, more familiar with this one. Second Peter 3, referring to Paul's letters, he says in all his letters, speaking of In them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So, again, uh, Peter's point here is talking about the distortion that they use of Paul's letters, but he calls Paul's letters on equal par with the rest of scripture. Now, after the New Testament was finished, after John wrote Revelation, just like in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament was finished, we had a group of, of uh, stuff that came up called the Old Testament Apocrypha. After the New Testament was finished, we had a group of stuff called the New Testament Apocrypha that came up as well. Trying to kind of ride the, in the wake of what had happened before. And we're going to talk about this, uh, why this is not true. In fact, this book called Lost Books of the Bible is primarily this New Testament Apocrypha. And we'll look at at this in just a minute. It's kind of funny, actually. But uh, for the first couple of hundred years, when the New Testament, after the New Testament was finished, we never had a group of people get together and uh, decide, recognize, actually, which books were and which books were not Scripture, like we had, like Judas Maccabeus did, of the Old Testament. It didn't happen for a couple of hundred years. You may say, well, why not? I mean, you'd figure that that the people in the first century would want to know what the Bible is. Well, think about it. Uh, If the apostles are still around, if the apostles are still living, you don't need a finished New Testament, do you? You just go ask Peter. You know, would you rather read Billy Graham's books or would you rather talk to Billy Graham? I'd rather talk to Billy Graham, ask him any questions. If Billy Graham's around and you say something wrong, he can correct you. But what happens when Billy Graham dies? Now, all of a sudden, his books are going to become much more valuable to us because if we want to know what Billy Graham thought, we have to read his books. But if he's around, we don't. We just ask him. So in the first century, it wasn't necessary to have a completed New Testament because we had the apostles. Once the apostles die, though, it's very important then that the New Testament be finished. When the apostles were around, they could could refute any error When the apostles died and error starts cropping up, you've got to have something as the standard that you can refute error as well. And there were a few uh, staggered attempts at this early on. Everybody had, you know, one, one Christian writer would say, well, this is, these are the books of, of the canon, the New Testament canon. Another one would do this. But it was all individuals. Until about 397, only about 200 years after the New Testament was finished, there had become enough heresy that started cropping up, enough of these uh, apocryphal books. Some of them were obviously false. Some of them you kind of go, well, and you wonder they needed to have a consensus a universal consensus of what all the church recognized was the bible and so they got together and they did this in 397 in a place called carthage council of carthage well how did they recognize scripture well first of all it had to have an apostolic origin which is just a fancy way of saying it had to be related to the apostles Every single book in the New Testament that's written was either written by an apostle of Christ or it was written by an associate, the apostle of Christ. Like Mark was an associate of of Peter. Luke was an associate uh, of Paul and and so forth. Most of it, the majority of it, was written by New Testament apostles. Secondly, it had to have doctrinal soundness. In other words, it couldn't conflict with Old Testament doctrine or with the clear teaching of Jesus. It couldn't. Uh, And this is where I want to read to you some of uh, the apocryphal New Testament. This is really kind of fun. This is from uh, what's called the Gospel of Thomas. And the reason that the apocryphal New Testament came to be is because we don't have a lot of information, for example. We have precious few bits of information about Jesus as a young boy. You know, it starts off, we've got a lot on his birth. We've got a little incident when he's 12 years old that we see. But that's about it until he's about 30 and he starts his ministry. Well, What the New Testament Apocrypha does is satisfies our curiosity with something. You know, it's almost like one of those Harlequin romances. It gives us stuff that we wouldn't otherwise know. But the question is, is it true? Or was it just made up? So let me read to you here. Jesus is five years old. And uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, and he is, and he's relating now uh, something that happened when Jesus was five, or allegedly happened. Alright, here we go. On a certain day, when there had fallen a shower of rain, Jesus went forth out of the house where his mother was, and played uh, upon the ground where the waters were running. And he made pools, and the waters flowed down, and the pools were filled with water. Uh, then saith he, I will that ye become clean and wholesome waters, and straightway they did so. But a certain son of Annas, the scribe, passed by, bearing a branch of willow, and he overthrew the pools with the branch. In other words, he spilled it, and the waters were poured out. And Jesus turned about and said to him, O ungodly and disobedient one, five-year-old, O ungodly and disobedient one, what hurt have the pools done thee that thou hast emptied them? Thou shalt not finish thy course, and thou shalt be withered up, even as the branch which thou hast cast in hand. It's very hard to read King James. And he went on, and after a little while, he fell, up, fell over and gave up the ghost. In other words, Jesus kills this guy. And he went on, uh, yeah, I read that. And when the young children that played with him saw it, they marveled and departed and told the father of him that was dead. And he ran and found the child dead, and went and accused Joseph, Jesus' dad. <laughs> How would you like to be Joseph? Your kid goes around killing everybody. Here's another one. And after, a cer- after certain days, as Jesus passed through the midst of the city, a certain child cast a stone at him and smote his shoulder. And straightway... Uh, let's see. And Jesus said to him, Thou shalt not finish thy course. And straightway he also fell down and died. And they that were there were amazed, saying, From whence is this child that every word which he speaketh becomes a perfect work? But they also departed and accused Joseph saying, Thou wilt not be able to dwell with us in this city, but if thou wilt teach thy child to bless and not curse, for verily he layeth our children. In other words, he kills them. (laughs) Now you'll notice that in the canonical Gospels, you don't see much of Joseph. You don't see anything of Joseph after uh, Jesus starts his ministry. Maybe Joseph popped off one day and Jesus decided to lay him out too. (laughs) You know? But what do you think about this? Would you like Jesus to play with your kids when he, was, when he was a child? My daughter, Sarah and Kate, would not have lasted one day playing with Jesus. Jesus would have killed them immediately. This is ludicrous. I mean, you can obviously look at this and compare it to the, to the, to the Jesus we have in the New Testament. And even when Jesus was strong in the New Testament, it was godly. It was not because somebody ticked him off. In fact, you see people all the time trying to tick him off and he keeps his cool. So uh, doctrinal soundness is the point here. Uh, These books are obviously, uh, these lost books of the Bible, are obviously fabrications. They're obviously made-up stories to give us information about the early life of Christ that we don't have and about the later life of the the apostles that we don't have. Obvious uh, fabrications. Also, they needed to have universal acceptance in order to be um, called canon, or order to be recognized as Scripture. And a consensus by the people, by the, those here at Carthage, recognized the life-changing effects that, that certain books had and that certain books did not have. Like certain books made you laugh, right? And other books struck you at the heart. Other books changed your life when you applied their message. And again, this is a universal. This is the first time we have the whole church coming together from all different brands of Christianity, coming together from different geographical locations and all agreeing unanimously that these 27 books are indeed uh, the Bible. And notice, they did not decide what was and what wasn't Scripture. This is very important. They recognized... What already had been determined as Scripture. See, each of them in their own particular ministries had already recognized the diamonds and the dung, so to speak. And when they came together, it was very clear which was which. It was a recognition of what the Holy Spirit had already made clear to the whole universal church, rather than flipping a coin and saying, Well, Thomas is in and Matthew's uh, Thomas is out and Matthew's in. It was a recognition. And you might say, "Well, this is a little subjective." I mean, uh, looking at these different things. Well, it is. It is a little subjective, but it's kind of like a jury in a court, And that you look at one bit of evidence, and it's not this one bit of evidence that gives you your verdict. You consider this evidence, and this evidence, and this evidence, and all of these coming together make it crystal clear what is scripture. It's what was recognized as scripture, not was what it was decided. Subjective, individually, yes, but you put them all together and it becomes very clear. What is scripture? So, how do we know that the canon is closed? I mean, how do we know that we can't add some more books to the Bible that crop up uh, in the 17th century? Well, first of all, because the early church understood it to be closed, and this is what we've just talked about, unanimously, universally closed. They understood it to be closed. They were only 200 years removed from Jesus and the apostles. Actually, 100 years removed from the apostles. Well, no, 200 years. And they were much closer to the situation than we are now. Much better to decide. They understood it to be closed. Secondly, the New Testament says that it would be. Second Peter chapter 1 says, "...His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence." For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Peter says everything we need. He has granted to us through what? Through his magnificent promises, through his word. Everything. Wait a minute, Peter. What about the lost letters of the Bible? Everything. What about the Gospel of Thomas? What about the Book of Mormon? What about the Apocrypha? Everything, Peter says, is given to us. Jude 3 and 4. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing to you that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, ungodly persons, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing what Ju- notice what Jude is saying. It was delivered once for all. He's saying, don't believe the stuff that comes in that denies our Master and our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there was ever a book that does this, this is it. And a few of the others that, that the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, has. They deny our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. They deny His deity. book of 1 John says that you, you can know the spirit of the Antichrist because anybody that says Jesus does not come in the flesh is of the Antichrist. In other words, you don't recognize God in the flesh. It's the teaching of the devil. The New Testament also tells the end of history. In other words, we need no more revelation. Remember what John, Jesus told His disciples here in John 16? He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you, meaning the apostles, into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. Do we have in the New Testament anywhere what is to come? We sure do. He revealed it to the apostles, what is to come. We have the end of the story. We have the end of it. We need no more revelation. In fact, it would be very logical that the Bible would be complete, the canon would be complete when the last apostle died. Because remember, the apostles were able to, to refute any doctrine that came up that was wrong. The apostles die, now who's, who gets to say what's right and wrong? Unless they have written what Jesus said would be all the truth. Unless it was in a form by which we could have a sound doctrine as well. The New Testament tells the end of history we do not need any more revelation. Also, new books are only proposed by heretical sects. And I'll try to pronounce that last word well. Sects. Sects. Second Thess 2 says, Now we request, request you, brethren, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, any false doctrine that comes in by a message or by a spirit or by a letter that, that teaches something other than what we've taught, he says, don't be shaken by that only go with what the apostles have taught in, in the letters from them. He said the same thing in Galatians 1. Even though we are an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And finally, we know that the canon is closed because God guards His word. He would not open it up to any more error. Remember what the last chapter, in fact, the very last verses of our Bible say. Revelation twenty-two eighteen through 21 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away from his part of the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. That's the end of the Bible. That's the very last words of the book of Revelation. John says you add nothing to this prophecy. There is there is nothing else. We have the end of the story. We don't need to know anything else. Don't add any words to it. Don't take any away, because God guards His words, and if you add to or take away, God will add the curses to you, or take away potential reward. Proverbs 30 says, "Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He reprove you, and you be proved a liar." Jesus said, Luke 21, heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away. You see, we have got, we have got to understand that the Holy Spirit, who sought fit to inspire Scripture through the church, would also see fit to preserve Scripture through the church. That when it came time for for the, the universal church to have a recognized body, a recognized canon of literature, that the Holy Spirit would be protecting that process that it would happen without, uh, without including any books that were false or leaving out any. Peter says we have everything we need. There is nothing left out. And it's this last verse I want us to apply today where Christ says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. My words will never pass away. Think about that. As you're here today, as you look around this building all the stuff that we do every single day. God's going to make a new heaven, a new earth. Everything that we're living with now is temporal. But God's word is eternal because it has eternal value to you. The 66 books of this Bible, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, God has sovereignly seen fit to preserve for you that you may benefit from it when you read it. But you can't benefit from it if you don't read it, you're not regularly in it, if you're not regularly applying its message, it it cannot benefit you. God has preserved it. So, let's make it a priority to spend time with this book and apply what God has made a priority to preserve for us. Let's pray. Lord, we as conservatives, as evangelicals, look at the Scripture text as our sole authority. And yet, how indebted we are to the godly men and women of the past of your church who by the tradition that is trustworthy have recognized the text of Scripture to be what it is. And Lord, we have a confidence that if you inspired this text, that you also would preserve it like Peter says we may have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness so therefore having everything we need in the scriptures let us not neglect time in it that we may indeed benefit from it we pray in Jesus name